Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now, here's your host. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, the podcast brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. I had the privilege this week of sitting down with Dr. Temple Grandin, and actually it was the third time we've had her on our podcast. I was excited to have her and her co-author, Dr. Deborah Moore, to share a little bit about their book, Navigating Autism, Nine Mindsets for Helping Kids on the Spectrum. I think their body of work speaks for itself, and they don't need any other introduction than that. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Deborah Moore and Dr. Temple Grandin. Professor Grandin, Dr. Moore, thank you so much for being here this week. Great to be having us. I want to, um, there are so many things I want to talk about, but I want to first start with, can you help us understand more about children with autism and what are the different ways that they think? Well, in the little kids, um, it's hard to tell whether they're a visual thinker, a word thinker, or a math thinker. Uh, usually that's going to show up around um, seven or eight years old, that's when that often becomes really obvious. Uh, little kids, two and three years old, the most important thing we got to work on is a lot of one-to-one therapy and try to get speech going. Uh, I went into very good therapy by the time I was two and a half years old. Uh, my speech teacher would speak slowly to me and then get me to repeat words back. There also was a lot of emphasis on teaching me how to take turns. And she had about six kids in her class. And it's really important to teach little autistic children how to take turns. Um, The different kinds of thinking, that comes later. One of the things in our book, Navigating Autism, is that autistic children are children first. That the label is very, very important. It's very important in getting resources. But you don't lead with a label. The label is not your entire life. So when we when you ask what to talk about autistic children, I think that's really important to remember. I completely agree with that. And by that, you mean that they're they're kids. They want to be outside. They want to play. They want to have a great interaction. They want to be able to talk and communicate. Is that what you're referring to? Well, I think one of the big problems today is kids spend way too much time on screens. Mm. And I think that's an even bigger problem for autistic kids than it is for regular kids. I can remember, I'm old enough to remember the very first TVs when they came in. And uh, mother limited it to one hour a day. And then she used to say, go outside and play. And that's why I came up with another book, The Outdoor Scientist, which was um, all the things my sister and I did outside, like rock collections, looking at the stars, observing animals. Uh, Kids aren't doing that stuff today. All kids want to get out there and play, and all kids want to learn. If you can find the way in, all kids are curious. Uh, All kids want a sense of mastery and they want a sense of approval. They want a sense of connection. That's true for autistic children as well. I think that's true for a lot of adults too. I mean, how many adults do we know that they're, myself included, that we're looking for approval and interaction and connection and communication? 
right. it doesn't, it's, it doesn't it's stop about, where it's about being human right well right. the other thing on little kids i talked to a lot of um parts of the country where there are no services or there's very very a small amount of services so i have a mom come up to me and she's got a two and a half year old that's not speaking and they're going to say they have to wait two years for diagnosis i'm going no you've got to start working with that child now yori does not speak let's rule out deafness we've got to make sure he's not deaf and doesn't have something physically wrong with his mouth or throat and then once you've ruled that out start working with him and if you can get a little bit of professional help, sometimes a school will provide an hour of speech a week. That's not enough time for therapy, but it's enough time for that speech teacher to be a coach. And a lot of these communities have really strong church groups. I said, get some volunteers to come in and start working with that kid and use that professional one hour a week as a coach because you've got to start working now. I was in really good intervention by the time I was two and a half years old. And I did not talk until I was four. I think Temple's example of using the church or other community groups is another way in which you're not creating this totally separate existence. You have to, parents can remember that there are lots of sources other than professionals, other than degreed, credentialed uh, mental health professionals or autism specialists, those are great, those are important, but if you don't have them, a lot of the things we just talked about, fostering curiosity, fostering fun, play, turn-taking that Temple always talks about that's so very important, social reciprocity. Those are things that an older sibling can help with. Those are things that a kid from the local high school can help with, a college kid if there's a community college, somebody from the church, a retired teacher, a neighbor who might be lonely and might really enjoy interacting. You want to broaden your mind beyond this capital A autism to think about the entire child and the entire community. I totally agree with that. And I was very lucky when I was mainstreamed into normal first grade to go to a small neighborhood school that the other children in my neighborhood went to. And I played with the other children in my neighborhood. And that was um, that was really good. I was not separated from the other kids. And I you know, we do all the things that we did in the 50s and um, ride trikes and bikes and um, uh, play tag and other games outside, hide and seek. We did a lot of that. That's so, it's so great. I mean, this is such a great, a great perspective for families. I think families get sometimes stuck in the, all right, I've got this diagnosis or we have this diagnosis in our family. We've got to do this therapy and this therapy and this therapy. And we're going to go from therapy to therapy to you know, all these different things and every minute of every day has to be a structured activity. But what you're, what you're both saying is yes, that's important, but also time with the neighbor and playing catch with grandpa or uh, riding a bike with a friend in the street, right? All those are important as well. And we need to not look past those and we're focusing on therapy. Well, and those are things that I did. And I also did a lot of making things when I was a kid. And by the time I got in second and third grade, it became obvious that I was really good at drawing. And I would just draw the same horse head over and over again. My mother would always encourage me to draw other things like the stable. You want to take that interest and broaden it. Now, a common mistake I see people making is mixing up an ability with an interest. Okay, horses would be an interest or cars would be an interest. Uh, visual thinking 
or mathematical ability, that's an ability. That's separate from an interest in something like uh, trucks or trains. But what you want to do is take that thing the child's interested in and broaden it. Use uh, cars for teaching math. You can read about the history of the car industry. So you're taking that interest and you're broadening it. Is that what you're referring to, uh, Temple, when you've talked about stretching skill sets and things like that? Well, yes. The other thing is stretching to do things. I'm seeing too many kids, even in high school, fully verbal kids, that have never learned are shopping. And I find that this is something right. I have to talk about. I met a 12-year-old girl in the airport who had never gone shopping. So I pulled $5 out of my pocket and I said, buy something in that newsstand that's across the hall. And she went over and bought a drink and brought the change back. It's the first time she shopped. Now, I didn't suggest going to the other end of the airport. This was a store across the hall that we could see while we were sitting at the gate waiting for our flights. So you start stretching. Um, uh, you don't uh, have them run a marathon the first time. You have them run in the store quickly while you're doing something else where you can kind of keep an eye on it. But there's a tendency to overprotect to the point where they're just not learning any basic skills. I think it's really tough for some parents because you have to be a strong advocate for your child and you know that your child's having a rough time you know in many many cases that your child's being ostracized or bullied and you start to become a protector and that's all well and good but if you become too anxious and you hold your child back from stretching like temple's talking about you're not doing that child a service in fact you may be doing that child a disservice so for parents my suggestion is always check your own anxiety at the door and don't put that on your child and don't underestimate your child and many professionals unfortunately will underestimate your child yeah don't let them do that and don't assume that they have the limitations that a professional predicts they will have because oftentimes that's not the way it turns out you cannot predict a child at one age into the future i want to dive into that a little bit more but first can you give us uh, another example maybe of stretching or or some advice on things we should be considering when we're trying to stretch a, a well you a give skill set? you get kids are afraid to try new things so my mother would always give me choices of things and when i was a teenager the opportunity came up to go to my aunt's ranch and i was afraid to go and mother gave me a choice you can go for a week and come home or you can stay all summer I got out and I loved it. In other words, giving a child some sense of control. Um, but I'm seeing, you know, then I have uh, grandfathers come up to me, grandmothers come up to me that find out they're autistic when the kids get diagnosed. And I find out that granddad had a, had a paper route at age 11 and we're learning working skills really early. I can remember a disastrous Kool-Aid stand that my sister and I had. I think I was like 10 and she might've been nine. And we ran out of sugar. Uh oh. Well, what you learn from that is have enough supplies. But I'm looking back on these things. I'm realizing what important things I learned from doing that. Kids aren't doing 
those simple things today, like having lemonade stands. Now I've heard that there's some places that are encouraging this now because it starts to teach, you know, entrepreneur skills. It teaches so many things. It teaches entrepreneur skills. It teaches how to, you had to learn how to work with your sister. You had to learn yeah. how to communicate. Like you say, you had to learn how to think ahead and you didn't think ahead enough on the no, one, we didn't. one thing, but you learned that wasn't a failure. That was a learning opportunity. Well, it was a learning opportunity. And when you use half as much sugar, it tasted just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and you also learn that Kool-Aid has a disgusting amount of sugar in it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, you know, giving room for... I like the way you said it, Dr. Moore, giving room for the learning opportunity, right? You know, giving giving kids an opportunity to fall off the bike, so to speak, you know, right? But making sure that they're safe when they do it and they have gradual steps to do it, but making sure that like, yeah, it's okay. You're going to fall. You're going to trip. You're going to not have enough sugar. You're going to not plan far enough in advance, all those things. Well, I was slow to learn right. the bike really because um, I had balance issues and I remember learning on the grass and um, in a summer group that I was in a little kind of a summer camp activities that the kids did just in the neighborhood, uh, there was a bike trip to the Coca-Cola bottling plant. Okay. And I did not get to go. And mother didn't take me down there in the car. She says, now you're gonna be motivated to learn how to ride a bike. And to this day, mm-hmm. I have never been to a Coca-Cola bottling plant, been to a beer bottling plant, but not a Coca-Cola plant. <laughs> Well, add it to the list of places you're going to need to go at some point. Yeah, I still need to go to Coca-Cola bottling plant. I haven't been to that yet. I've been to all kinds of other food processing plants. A lot of autistic kids are perfectionists, and they have a lot of anxiety about being perfect. So if you can start early on with letting your child make mistakes, and sometimes even kind of setting them up that might sound kind of funny but but letting them into an experience that you know like temple always says is not throwing them in the deep end of the pool but is probably going to involve some learning and some trial and error and some mistakes i used to take a glass um paper cup and put just a few drops of water in it and put it next to me in my office and i would on purpose take my hand as though it was a mistake and spill the, the cup. And, and I knew just a few drops were going to come out and it wasn't going to hurt anything, but it let the child see, oh, wow, Dr. Moore spilled her glass and made a mistake. And I got to model how I talked to myself about that. Of, Whoops, I'm going to have to be more careful. I think I had that too close to me. What could I do the next time and get them involved in talking about it? And they also usually would pick up the cup, which was a very nice practice. Um, but parents can do that. That parents can model making mis- trying something new and making a mistake in front of their well, child. I think and showing no big deal. But I think part of the problem with making mistakes is kids are not doing hands-on things. Where if you make a mistake, then you correct it. Now in my book, Calling All Minds, which is my childhood project book, one of the projects is a paper snowflake. Okay, mm-hmm. so I held this up at another Zoom call, and I had a teacher asking it all seriousness, and I just couldn't believe it. She said, what's going to happen to a child's self-esteem if they make a paper snowflake and it falls apart? And I said, you get another piece of printer paper and try again. And then if you still can't do it, maybe you can look it up on YouTube. Right. Uh, but you see, if you don't do hands-on things, um, and paper snowflakes is just a piece of printer paper, Right. Uh, 
I was shocked that a teacher in all seriousness, that's within the last year, in 2020, yeah. would ask that question. And I'm very concerned about kids getting totally away from the world of practical. When I did a book signing for Calling All Minds, I found out that this was three years ago, that um, a lot of elementary school children in Denver, like maybe a quarter of them, had never made a paper airplane, which is another one of the projects. You know, people have done lots of studies and said, why did you bother putting just the most basic paper airplane in that book? Because there's a lot of kids that have never made one. Right. And they and made them that night at this big theater and they were chucking them off the balcony and having a great <laughs> great time. Yeah, it's so it's so easy. You know, I'm I'm thinking about all the things you've said so far, right? And you know, I'm I'm hearing that all the stuff you're talking about are things I used to do when I was a kid when I was bored because we didn't we were only allowed TV a short amount of time or we were only allowed, you know, and a little bit of video game time or things like that. I remember my brother and I used to make a game where we would um, we would make paper balls and we would see if we could throw them in a in a bucket all the way across the room. And, it was, you know, that was the game that we played and we would do that for hours. You know, and it, we've discovered all sorts of things about that, right? The smaller, the tighter you squeeze the the ball, the further it throws, and, and okay. things along those lines. A lot of discovery in that. You're learning stuff. I've watched the most interesting thing with about a two and a half, a three year old child uh, learning about how water flows from the drain pipe off the roof of our building. Right. I just was uh, walking into the building, and this little kid was uh, looking where the uh, the water came off the roof went through a little concrete trough and then it went under a metal plate on the sidewalk, came out the other side. And the, the daddy was saying, well, take it. He got the kid to get the leaves out of the gutter. And then he was running around to the other side of the gutter to see how the water came out. Well, that's just the most mundane thing. But this kid was having a wonderful time learning about how water comes off the roof and went underneath a metal plate on a sidewalk. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, Dr. Moore, what you said, and then we're going to move on in just a second. But, you know, what you said was parents try to be protectors when in the reality is we're trying to set up, you know, sometimes when we're trying to protect our kids from those moments where water spilled or whatever, we're really depriving them of an opportunity to learn. And so for any of the parents who are listening, it's OK. Mistakes are going to happen and they're learning opportunities. So em embrace that. Well, uh, I ruined a sewing project when I was about 12. I cut the fabric wrong. There was no way to buy any more fabric, and I'd throw the project away. You know what I learned from that? Be more careful before you cut it. Right, right. talk about um you know you've both have said that that autistic children are being underestimated um i want to hear more about your thoughts on that and dive into that a little bit i'm still running into parents where a doctor tells them well he'll never do this or he'll never do that and and um, you know a lot of people didn't think that i was going to amount to too much and one of the things that motivated me when I was in my 20s to work on the projects that are shown really nicely in the movie, these dipping bat projects I did in the 70s, is I want to prove to people I wasn't stupid, that I really could do it and I really could design it. If I go back to the example temple that you gave of the teacher and the snowflake, I think that teacher was probably trying to protect her student, Yeah, but there was an 
assumption that she was making unconsciously that that student was quite fragile. And I think we have to be careful not to assume because a child has a label that they're fragile. Well, and the other thing is it's a paper snowflake. It's a piece of printer paper. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you do projects with things like printer paper, you know, with young kids. And then they learn how to make it right. And then, then as far as the online, you know, might show them how to make it. And if they still couldn't make it, we get some videos on YouTube and watch them. Because I'm a big fan of using online to learn how to actually do things. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's a video on there making paper snowflake. And then you learn how to do it. But I was really shocked when the teacher thought that this kid's self-esteem was going to be wrecked because this was cut wrong and it fell apart. I think a couple of the most important things for all kids in order to be able to perform at their highest potential, whatever that is, is to learn to be able to calm themselves a bit, to self-soothe, to learn to be able to delay gratification, and to be able to learn to try again. When they make well, that's right. One of the things I was taught when I was a very young child was to always try my very, very best. And as long as I tried my very, very best, you know, that was um, that was good. The other thing is, you know, kids, I remember, you know, like doing grown-up things. And one of the things that was done in our neighborhood, everybody did it. As soon as kids got to be a six or seven, they had to dress up in their good clothes and the parents had parties and greet the guests and serve the snacks and that taught really important social skills. Also in the 50s, another standard parenting practice that I think is really good, I call it teachable moments. So we'd sit down at the table, and if I uh, picked up a piece of meat in my fingers, the mother would say, use the knife and fork. She'd give the instruction instead of screaming, no, she'd tell me what I should do. Yeah, there's so many learning opportunities that happen in any given day. I remember as a kid, uh, my dad used to work from home and the home phone was his work phone. And so we were taught to answer in a very specific way. Uh, but it was good for us to know proper social etiquette and times that we didn't do it right. It was, it was, you know, it was funny in the moment, but also we learned a lot from it and it's, and it's helped. Well, my brother, who's not autistic, hated the parties, but he admitted that they helped him learn social skills that enabled him to become a senior bank vice president. So in order for in order for individuals to really achieve their highest potential, it sounds like we need a couple of a couple of different factors, one of which is a community to help support. And the other is a team of professionals who are helping push for that growth in in conjunction with parents. The other thing we need is people in the neighborhood you can use for resources because skills tend to be uneven. Okay, my various publications, I've talked about the different kinds of minds. I'm an object visualizer. That's shown very nicely in the HBO movie. Everything I think about is a picture. I'm absolutely terrible at higher math. And then you have the visual, spatial, mathematical mind. And then you have the person that's the word thinker who's on the autism spectrum who might be super good at selling cars because he'd know every detail of every car that was on the lot. And you want to expand that area of strength. Mother always encouraged my ability in art. And she encouraged me to do lots of different kinds of art. Another kid may need to be moved way ahead in mathematics. That needs to be done. I, my art was always encouraged, but I was in third grade. I didn't know how to read. 
and they were using the Dick and Jane books, which are totally boring. Sight words didn't work for me. So mother got a book worth reading and then taught me with phonics to sound out my words. And I very quickly went no reading, sixth grade reading in one semester. So this gets into how do you teach reading? You know, use the method that works. Um, but the skills are gonna be uneven. And often there's not enough emphasis made on building up the area of strength. They can turn into a career because my art ability turned into designing industrial design ability. I've had parents where both parents were computer programmers and their kid was a little math genius. Well, he was on the autism spectrum and they were so far into the label, he never thought to teach their kid programming. And they were both programmers. And when I brought that up, they go, oh, never thought of that. I love that point about building up their strengths, right? If they're already good at something, building up a strength, that's good for that's good for any of us. I think so many times, you know, we get focused on the things that are the weaknesses. And, and Dr. Moore, maybe you can elaborate on this a little bit. Um, we get focused on uh, the weakness that we miss sometimes the strength and building those up that, to your point, could become careers. Absolutely. You know, even I mean, the diagnosis is a diagnosis of deficits. And that kind of steers us unwittingly in that direction. And therapists often tend to focus on what they see as challenging behaviors because they think that's what they're supposed to eliminate or they think that, you know, it makes life easier for everyone. Maybe it would make life easier for everyone, but it's often more frustrating for the child and you'll get more motivation from a child if you're working with them on something that they're interested in and have some ability already to do and then you expand via small steps on that and you use their way of thinking to do that so you take both their strength and their interest which are not the same thing but you use them in conjunction and to put your focus there I think you get much more mileage than concentrating all your focus on problem behaviors or deficits. All right, let's look at what causes problem behaviors, such as screaming. And the first thing we've got to look at is sensory. We used to go on a ferry boat, and I hated that ferry boat, because when the horn blew, I'd fling myself down on the deck and scream. So they used to let me go uh, down below so it wouldn't be as loud. Now, sometimes a child can get over something like this, if they can control the stimulus. Let's say it's a vacuum cleaner or a hairdryer. Let the child turn it on. You know what would have gotten me over that horn? They'd let, take me up to the uh, pilot house, and when they came into the harbor, let me go, let me pull it. I'm serious. One kid was terrified of sirens, and they took him down to the fire station, and they actually let him turn it on. When the kid has control of the stimulus, you can sometimes desensitize. So. If the problem behavior is happening in the busy Walmart, that is probably sensory. Another thing, if a child remains nonverbal, you've got to rule out a painful medical problem like a tummy ache or acid reflux they can't tell you about. Uh, the other big thing in nonverbal is frustration because they can't communicate. They have got to have a way to communicate. And then there's sometimes you pitch a big fit just to get attention or get out of doing something. So you got to be a good detective. But my uh, mother observed that temper tantrums were more likely to happen when I was tired. And they didn't really understand sensory problems back in the 50s, but she knew that large crowds, you know, I didn't handle that all that well. But 
there's been some real successes with letting the kid control the sound. Another kid couldn't stand the buzzer on the scoreboard at the gym. So they took him down to the gym when nobody was there and let him turn on the buzzer on the scoreboard. And he started tapping out tunes on it. Nice. I like that. Yeah, and that's like an that. easy thing to do. Oh, when I was in when I was in kindergarten, I was terrified of Mr. Russell's giant vacuum cleaner. Of course, I was a little kid, so this vacuum cleaner was half the height of me with a giant bag. I was afraid I was going to get sucked into it. They should have taken me down there and let let him have Mr. Russell demonstrate it to me and let me play with it and yeah, make yeah. the bag inflate and deflate. It would have become my favorite thing. That's not a difficult thing to do. You give the kid control the dreaded noise. And a couple of places that that's really important is the dentist office and the doctor's office. Any new place that you're going to? Well, the other thing is to make it interesting. Because when I was a senior in high school, I was in a very scary emergency landing in a plane. And and I became white knuckles after that. And what got me over it is aviation had become interesting. I got a chance to ride in the cockpit of a large plane hauling heifers to Puerto Rico in the early 70s. And now things started to get interesting. You know, kids like electronics. And let's say they go to the hospital, we get all these monitors. Well, you could look up the websites, the companies that make the monitors, um, and start making them interesting instead of scary. That's so interesting. It's it's a great point, right? That concept of being a detective, I think, works both ways. It works for the parents and the staff and those who are helping, but also giving the child the opportunity to do the same thing, right? I, I, that's I'm hearing that connection from both of you. That's that's a great perspective. I want to go back to something you both have mentioned a couple times: ability versus interest. How do you tell the difference? All right. Let's say it's really the way I look at it. You see, I just see it. Okay, drawing is an ability. The thing I drew, horse head, that was an interest. So what mother did is expand it and say, well, let's draw it stable. Let's draw the entire horse. Horses would be an interest. Drawing's an ability. Or doing mathematics is an ability. Uh, but then you might have an interest in airplanes. Or you might have an interest in some famous mathematician. But it's really important to differentiate between the interest, which I want to expand, and the ability, which would be something like visual thinking and art. Music would be another ability. Interest might be the type of music they want to play. But the ability would be playing musical instruments or perfect pitch or singing. You're describing both need to happen. Right? You need to play up the strength of the ability, but also into the interest so that you can eventually turn that into a career, right? Well, or whatever it may be. concerned about and schools have taken out so many of the hands-on classes, is a lot of kids aren't getting exposed to enough stuff. How could you get interested in playing a musical instrument if you never were exposed to a musical instrument or to art or mechanical things? I mean, I think taking shop class out has just been terrible. And cooking and sewing and theater. Now, for me, I wasn't interested in being in the play, but I made costumes and scenery in elementary school, high school, and in college. Okay, so that's where theater uh, was, uh, I participated in, and I was able to have friends through shared interests, like being involved in those shows. I want to talk a little bit about uh, preparing kids for adulthood 
as they're getting into teenage years and young adult years, um, how can we prepare them for adulthood? And what, what's some advice you would give to them? We got to learn job skills. Let's okay. start, you know, it starts with sleepovers when kids are little. So you get the idea of being away from home, shopping, bank account. I'm seeing kids are not learning that. I got 50 cents a week for allowance and I knew exactly what I could buy with it. And there were certain things that were allowance items like little toy airplanes. And if I wanted a 69 cent airplane, I had to save for two weeks. Learning that at a young age. The other thing is working skills. I just read a big article in, um, I get, you know, by Wall Street Journals and New York Times and read them on the plane and that they can't find the kids that run the concession stand in an amusement park. You know, we need to be getting kids into those kind of jobs just as soon as possible. Now, the thing that we need to be careful about is the multitasking. I wouldn't put them on a super busy McDonald's window, but I, you know, just the summer jobs that kids used to do, I, they're not doing them. And these things teach such important skills. So we're having a slow transition from the world of school to the world of work. All right, driving, it's going to take longer because of multitasking. I did 200 miles on dirt roads, using a subway system, using a bus system. These things need to be learned before they graduate from high school. So it's not a sudden jumping off the service cliff. Uh, you've already made the transition to work. Um, okay, how do we transfer to, okay, living in a dorm, uh, living away from home? Well, stay over at a friend's house, stay over at a relative's house, maybe spend the night in a hotel. You know, so it's not such a sudden, big, fat, scary surprise. And a lot of the skills that you need at work can start very early. They don't need to wait until adolescence. That's right. You need to learn to be clean. You need to learn basic hygiene. Yep. You need to learn how to speak to people. You need to learn how to accept feedback. You need to learn how to not say everything that comes into your mind. You need to be able to um, use an alarm clock to get yourself up so that you can be there on time. You need to be able to understand the importance of, of uh, following instructions. All of those things can happen with a six-year-old at a very small level. And then you just keep building it and building it over the years. Um, the studies seem to show that a job outside of a, the family business, a, a real job, is the best predictor of post high school success for those children who are capable of holding down a job. If they've had a paid job in high school, that's the number one predictor, but not everybody's going to have a job and not every community has jobs for kids. So if that's not available um, or not, or your child's not capable of it, you can still get creative and find either a volunteer position or create a way for your child to, to, contribute something. They've got to learn how to do a task on a schedule outside the family when somebody else is the boss. Now, here's a super famous person with autism right here. Yeah. For those listening, uh, Professor Grandin is referring to Elon Musk. He came out on Saturday Night Live recently. This book is six years old. I put these post-it notes in there six years ago to mark the pages where I thought he was autistic. You know, now I can say it. He had childhood jobs. Exposed to a lot of travel, out yeah. doing a whole lot of things when he was young. He was also bullied in school and thrown down the stairs and had his face busted in. Pretty mm -hmm. successful now. Uh, the thing I'm thinking about now is 
as a child, all the chores I had to do, I've really translated into a adult skills and job skills, right? I remember being a kid and we had to set the table before we ate dinner and then clear the table afterwards and make sure our hands were clean and, and things like that. And so that's now translated to me being an adult and I have a clean workstation and I make sure I wash my hands before I go to work or before I go to an interview or things like that. That's really what you're describing, right? Right. Well, and then I can remember learning to save money. My sister and I would save for an entire month so we could blow our allowances at the county fair because mother considered carnival games allowance items. And, um, you know, we'd play the game, lose the game, but you always got a lay for a consolation prize. And we thought the lays were super cool because you couldn't buy them in a regular store. That's great. But that, I'm looking back on that and I'm thinking about the skills that learned from that. We saved for an entire month for the county fair. That's the delayed gratification you mentioned, right? So I want to hear more. Um, your your book, Navigating Autism, Nine Mindsets for Helping Kids on the Spectrum, is coming out in September. Uh, where can we find this when it comes out? Uh, probably Amazon is going to be where lots of folks go. Great. Um, Norton is the publisher, so you can also get it directly from them. Great. It can be ordered at just any bookstore bookstore websites, Amazon, and it's available also in, in ebook and audio book. Great. I'm finding now, I just looked at royalty statements for thinking and pictures, and I was shocked that one third of the money was audio book. That is getting oh. really popular. That's, I mean, that's great that people are finding a, a, a way that works for them to get the information, right? If you, if you can't sit down and dedicate time to sitting and reading, get an audio book, listen to it in your car, listen to it while you're yeah. on a walk, listen to it while you're just sitting quietly. It's great that people are encouraged to do that. Professor Grandin, Dr. Moore, thank you both so much for being here. I appreciate your time, your knowledge, your insight. I, I, I could listen to you both for another hour, but I won't make you sit through that. You know, I just, I feel like there's so many things that are happening for you both in terms of being an inspiration in multiple different movements across the world, right? Making sure that an autistic empowerment movement, women's empowerment movement, and also for you specifically, Temple, um, you know, ethical treatment of animals. And it just seems like so many different things. And it's just impressive. I don't have a question in that. I just, just a statement, really. I uh, just appreciate your insight today. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thanks very much. enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Deborah Moore and Professor Temple Grandin. They are just a world of information and a wealth of knowledge. I, I hope you found that interesting and valuable. For me, the two things that really stood out was just some of the value that comes from simple daily living skills and simple daily challenges. I think sometimes as parents and clinicians, we can get overwhelmed by the concept that we have to do all of these therapies and all of these grandiose plans and have everything lined up and it's got to be perfect when the reality is Sometimes simple opportunities to fail every day are going to help shape us to be productive members of society as adults, right? The, the idea of an opportunity to fail is really an opportunity to learn. And I think they both did a great job of sharing some examples for how we can stretch skill sets, uh, but also interests and activities. And I think that can lead to more success for our individuals who need support. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. Thanks so much for listening.
We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.